Thank you for downloading or podcasting this track. This recording has been remastered to provide the best sound possible given the audio environment of the original recording session. Mosaic Silver Spring is a faith community located just inside the Capitol Beltway in Montgomery County. For more information, please visit our website, www.mosaicsilverspring.org, and we'll see you in the neighborhood. Good morning, church. Um, this is from Ephesians 3, 1 to 21. I, I want you to remember that Paul's syntax is a little strange sometimes. So um, as I read it, if I make mistakes, please forgive me. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, let's pray. Father, I ask that you be with all of us and open our ears and our hearts that we might hear and obey and change if we need to, that we will use what is spoken to us by Pastor Joel. And I pray that you will be with Joel and give him your wisdom to impart to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Don't worry, Maggie, uh, the Apostle Paul's heart for me as well. Uh, It's not just you. 
In April of 1939, there was an obituary in the New York Times, and uh, it appeared in, you know, like a one-inch by six-inch column, which I, I don't know captured all of the details of Ira Yates' life, uh, but it did a good job of summarizing. Ira Yates grew up in Texas as a young boy picking peanuts for 50 cents a day. He was living in a rural section of West Texas, and by most commonly accepted definitions, he grew up poor. He worked hard, didn't want to be poor, but that's how he lived. And as he moved into adulthood, he obtained a store that he worked that uh, served and connected to uh, the West Texas town where he was at. And as an adult, he decided to trade that store so that he could go into cattle ranching in West Texas. Now, all of Ira Yates' friends told him, that's a little bit crazy. You are definitely on a fast track to poverty by doing that. He is quoted in his own obituary as saying, my friends all knew I would go broke. They, they said even Buffalo knew better than to cross the Picos, that a crow would not fly over it. Now, just to translate for all of you, uh, in Texas slang, the buffalo and crows knowing better to go to that land basically is a bad idea, okay? Uh, and, and so all of his friends told him, and he does it anyway. As he financially drifted year over year deeper into the red, these cattle did not do well in West Texas, just as his friends told him, Yates began to struggle. And he invited some prospectors uh, onto his land to check out maybe if the cattle ranching on top of the land isn't going well, maybe there is oil underneath of it. And what resulted from uh, that checking is that Yates was sitting on top of one of the largest pools of oil that we've ever known. Uh, Once they tapped into that, Yates uh, basically made a fortune many, many, many times over. But what I appreciate is in this obituary, they seem to be capturing well the tension between all of Yates' early life and when he's making a go at it as a cattle rancher, and that pivotal moment where he traded the store for the oil field. And so there's this moment where Yates is simultaneously struggling and failing in one sense, but also sitting on a massive fortune in another sense. And it's that tension point that the Times obituary tends to focus on and grab onto. What the eye may have perceived in that particular moment of Yeats' life is that he was impoverished. And yet a deeper and more fuller look at his life is that he was sitting on a fortune. As Paul is sitting in a prison writing to the church about the good news of Jesus' resurrection, from a limited point of view, Paul's ministry was operating in the red. Uh, He was constantly stifled and obstructed and persecuted as he went through the known world trying to announce to people that God had raised Jesus from the dead and that this actually meant something to everyone, not just, uh, not just the Jewish people, but uh, to Gentiles or effectively to everyone else. This is Paul's announcement of the good news. And yet, if you looked really narrowly at his life, he found himself sitting in a prison. 
in this third chapter, it's as if he, as he begins to pray for the church in the midst of his own struggle, as he suffered, it's as if he, in that moment, is zooming out just a bit to say, I understand that just right now, things look rough, but if you follow my zooming out on the broader perspective, I am sitting on the massive riches of God's grace and mercy and love to us. And that informs a fuller view of just what I'm going through in life. One of the immense benefits that you have, you this morning, showing up here to Mosaic Silver Spring, is that you may be struggling. You may be experiencing financial difficulty and wondering if what your friend said about you is right. You may be experiencing significant relational difficulty, whether with friends or a spouse or with children. You may be in a set of circumstances that if you look at it narrowly, you say, man, life is not going so well. Yet, if you've arrived this morning, and if just for a moment you can have the imagination to see and understand what God's unfolding drama of redemption means to you, it is an invitation to zoom out just a bit. To recognize that even in the midst, and this is not to set aside or to ignore your struggles, but rather to broaden perspective. That is why Paul writes to us this morning. That's how his word from prison connects to our lives. And that's what we'll look at this morning in two points. The developing mystery and deepening prayer. Developing mystery and deepening prayer. In verse 1 of chapter 3, and if you have it, I would encourage you to follow along with me. Uh, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then in your English translations, at least if you're using the the ESV, uh, but in others as well, there is an added hyphen there for you because Paul's thought is about to break off. He is about to go into an autobiography of God's grace. So he leads with the fact that he's a prisoner. And uh, there's a dynamic that's playing out here. Remember, in the previous weeks, Paul has announced that Jesus is king, that he has the power over all authority and dominion, and anyone else who would claim to have power, Jesus is over them all. And that Jesus has conquered sin and death and the divisions that would typically divide us, all of those things are dealt with in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And and so as Paul writes to pray about the impacts and overflow of this reality, he recognizes almost in this autobiographical moment, like, I get that this doesn't look great for me. Uh, prisoner for X number of months at blank and blank prison has never been a great addition to many resumes in our area, fairly or not. That's also true in the first century. And so as Paul writes, recognizing that he's been imprisoned because of the message that he carries, it's, it's almost as if he breaks away for a second to give them a sense of that broader view of what God's doing. That there is a developing mystery that they participate in. 
And in verse 2, and all that follows, there is this shift away to a broader dynamic that's playing out. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, the members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the gospel, Paul says, that I was made a minister. So what Paul's doing is he is narrowly focusing on the reality that he's a prisoner because of the message that he's carried. That's true. But then in verses 2 through 7, it's as if he zooms out for a minute and says, right, but I'm also participating in this unfolding mystery of what God is doing in the world. That in previous times, uh, men and women, prophets, didn't fully see just what God's redemption in Jesus Christ would mean. But you, friends, you are invited into it. Paul is praying here that the people will get a sense of just what God is doing in the world and that that will begin to shape their lives. He can continue on and describe that uh, what is happening to him is a participation in something that is ultimately for the glory of God. It is uh, not only a narrow look at his life, but a broad look of what God is doing in the world. Now, here's where this lands for each of us. We, because of the time and place where we live, we can oftentimes think of a very tight connection between how our life is going and how much God loves us. And so we oftentimes think, uh, not quite correctly, That if uh, our life is going well, it must be because God is blessing us and he deeply cares about us. And, And then sadly, the inverse is true. If my life is going poorly, that must mean I've made God angry somehow or that God doesn't love me. So when you're doing well in your job, when you're invited to apply for a promotion, when you know it's really competitive and lots of other people are applying and you apply and you get the promotion, you may be tempted to think, oh, God really loves me. Look at what he's doing. When money is coming through the door, when you're hitting on stuff here and there, when it seems like every time you turn around, uh, the investments that you've made or the financial decisions that you're working out, they land for you. You think, oh, God, he's looking out for me. I'm blessed. When your relationships are going well, when you feel happy in life, you feel connected, you've arrived at intimacy, the loneliness levels are dropping down, you think, oh, God really loves me now. And there, in our time and place, can be lots of pressures to think of this tight connection between those two things. And what Paul is doing here is saying, no, 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 no. God loves you because he's committed himself at great cost, in fact, giving the life of his son, Jesus, for you to deal with your most fundamental issues. And that's God's love to you that is not connected to your job performance or your financial status or your relational health. And so 
in this moment, part of the benefit of what Paul's doing is he's saying, even though I'm in prison and suffering, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love me. That's the flip side of that in verse, friends, is that when you're struggling with loneliness, you can think, does God not care about me and that's why I have to face this? When you face acute or chronic pain or illness, when you are confronted with the reality of death, our quick thought because of that connection, when things are going well, I'm blessed. When things are going poorly, I must be lost. We can think, God must not love me. Part of the great benefit and weight of what Paul's writing in his sharing of his own story in Ephesians 3 is that that connection is not how God works. Paul's saying, yes, I'm in prison and yes, I'm suffering, but my suffering is connected to the unfolding of God's mystery of how his grace and love works in the world. And he builds on that to say, how do I know that that's true? Well, first he says, God's revealed it to me as a part of the unfolding message of God's work in the world. But moreover, he can look to Jesus Christ. He does this in verses 11 and 12. This was according to God's eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Paul knew that suffering for the sake of participation in God's plan wasn't something that Paul alone faced. It's something that Jesus faced for you. Jesus gave up all of the status that one could hope for out of love for you. Jesus took on uh, suffering and humiliation that was entirely undeserved out of love for you. Jesus was crucified, died, was buried out of love for you to deal with our collective sin, to deal with the barriers that obstructed us from God and from one another. And so this idea of breaking the connection between all is going successful in life, it must be because God loves me, or uh, all is not going well, and so it must mean God doesn't love me. Paul's life and the life and ministry of Jesus are testimony to that's not exactly how God's love works. There are times where we may be suffering, and that's sad and hard and difficult, but it doesn't mean that somehow God has forsaken us or failed to love us. Paul says, look at my own life as a testimony. Let it broaden your view of just what God is doing, and don't lose heart. Paul anticipates this connection between success and failure and says, no, 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 it's about faith and faithfulness. It's about faith and faithfulness. So if I don't participate and know God's blessing based on how well I'm doing or how poor I'm doing, then how do I know? Well, you live a life of faith and you pursue faithfulness. That's how you know. So to bring it back to our jobs, how do you know that you're uh, performing your particular call or vocation using your gifts and the things that God has given you well? Do you do it in faith and do you try to do it faithful for God's glory? How do you know that things are going well for you in life, in your own circumstances? Are you trying to go day through day in faith and in faithfulness? 
How are you participating in your relationships, friendships, connections as a neighbor with strangers? Do you operate in those various spaces in faith and with faithfulness? What's going to come, just so you have a bit of a preview, a foretaste, keep coming back? In the subsequent chapters, Paul is going to explicitly begin to unpack. Here's exactly what it looks like to live with faith and faithfulness. We don't have time today to go into it, but in the coming weeks, whether it's between husband and wife, parent and child, neighbors, uh, it's, it's yet to come. Keep coming back. Let that serve as a preview for the weeks ahead. But faith and faithfulness is part of this unfolding mystery. In verse 14, you'll see Paul says, uh, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He's picking up that prayer. So he started the prayer in verse 1, and then he departs off in verse 2. In 13, he kind of closes that out. In 14, he comes back to the prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And he uh, jumps into this fantastic triune prayer. A prayer to the Father in verse 14. A prayer involving the Son in verse 17. A prayer involving the Spirit in verse 16. Where he asked that they may be strengthened with power through the Spirit in their inner being. And that each of us may know the love of God. And know it deeply. And know how it works. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, in his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. In the book, he is often picking up Paul's prayers throughout the New Testament or prayers in the New Testament as a way to help uh, inform, guide, spur on, give us a broader imagination when it comes to prayer. From Carson's vantage point, the case that he makes in the book is that oftentimes uh, our prayers, uh, and I don't mean to be unfair here, but uh, specifically uh, in our time and place, he would say our prayers tend to be a bit shallow. Uh, They don't always have a depth to them. They don't always drive our hearts the right directions or far enough. And so Carson uh, takes up in the 11th chapter this particular prayer from Paul in verses 14 through 21. It serves so he makes the case as a pattern for how you and I can continue to pray today. Often, if I think about my own prayer life, if I think about my community groups, if I think about the times that I pray uh, with individuals in, in, uh, in a given week, uh, if I looked at all of that time, there are certain patterns that exist that some of us may be familiar with. Patterns like, God, thanks for this meal. God, please help me today with all the things that I have to do. God, please help make my friendships or relationships better. Maybe just quite simply, God, please help me. And uh, these are all fine things to pray. Nothing wrong with any of these prayers. But Paul, in verses 14 through 21, gives maybe just a bit of a vision for what a deepening prayer life would be. He models for us from Scripture how we can not only pray for the food that we eat with Thanksgiving, not only pray for the tasks that we have in an individual day, not only pray for our immediate relationships, and and that's important, and, and not only pray and plead and cry out for God's help, but we can pray for more. We can bow our heads to our Father, the creator of heaven and earth, 
the one who is rich in glory and works by the power of his spirit deep into our inner being. We can pray for spiritual maturity. To begin to see not only the immediacy of our circumstances, but to have that broader view of the riches of God's covenant blessings for us in Jesus. We can begin to engage not only with the immediacy of our circumstances, but with the deeper spiritual struggles that we may have. That we, through Jesus Christ, can pray not only that we would love God more, that's fair and well enough, but hear this, that we would know God's love to us. Paul's prayer here is one that goes beyond the immediate and superficial, down deep to our depths, to our motivations, to our core identity, to the things that we may be tempted to worship, to the things that we may run to uh, for brief moments of joy. Paul is praying down to those depths. And Paul's praying uh, not that we would work harder or gain another credential, but that it would settle in deeply in ways that impact our resistance to temptation and our motivations to care for others that we would know how surpassing God's love and grace and mercy to each of us truly is. Now, that's a prayer, right? That's a model for how you and I can pray today so that when you go to lunch later this afternoon, you can thank God for the food. Yes, nothing wrong with that. But then you may also go a bit more and say, and God help me in the midst of my struggles to not run to cheap thrills or easy grabs when it comes to temptation, but to resist those things and know, God, that you love me deeply. May your deep love that's been displayed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus be operative when I drive and engage strangers and come across difficult situations. A deepening prayer life is part of what Paul models here to help us grow. Ira Yates invited prospectors in to kind of survey and get that broader sense. It worked out fairly well. You can go find the obituary from April of 1939 to read more about his life. Here, Paul is giving us tools for prospecting something much more deeper and valuable. The spiritual reality of what God's doing in the world. Paul's giving us God's revelation in Scripture and the power of deep prayer. And he's saying, use these tools, scripture and prayer, to push beyond just the immediacy of how we may be gauging or feeling in a given moment, but to run those things through the developing and unfolding mystery that God's grace is not captured by one ethnicity or socioeconomic group or one nation, but it is going to the ends of the earth to all nations, tribes, and languages. To capture the deep mystery that you don't earn your way to God by cleaning yourself up and making yourself better. But it is God coming down to meet you in the life and death of Jesus. 
the developing mystery that as a church today, we continue to navigate in different cultural moments from Paul, but helping others through Scripture and prayer to have a broader view beyond just their immediate circumstances to just see what God is doing in the world. That's our call to worship and glorify God as part of the church. It's where Paul lands in verses 20 and 21. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. One of the few times Paul mentions the glory of God in the church. This idea that through the developing mystery, God continues to work in our day and age, even right here, through us, corporately. Wow, that's perspective that can help fill out and bring light to our own lives. Let us pick up the prospecting tools of God's scripture, his unfolding mystery, all of the prophets and promises of God open to us and a deepening life of prayer and move forward together so that we cannot cling tightly to that view, but make it known to all who have ears to hear. Let me pray. God, I ask that you will continue to work in our lives just as you've promised. And that as a church, when uh, we are tempted to think that when things go well, you must love us. And when things are going poorly, uh, we must be distant from you. Instead, God, I pray that we would live lives of faith in you and faithfulness to your word. That your revealed will in scripture will come to bear in our lives. And that we will pray deeply so that we would know your great love and grace to us. God, I ask that as a church community, we would be growing in our faith, not only asking and working through the immediate and superficial things, but pushing deeper, pushing deeper to know just how you are at work in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.